0: hello i'm jonathan stark and this is ditching hourly today i'm joined by my friend reuven Lerner. reuven is a python expert who teaches live courses on-site at companies in the united states europe israel and china reuven's most recent book python workout 50 exercises to flex your python programming muscles is now available through manning publishing has been called the first book you should get after learning python Reuven's free weekly newsletter is read by more than 10,000 Python developers and software engineers around the globe, and his trainer weekly newsletter is similarly popular with corporate trainers. I did not know this, but Reuven created one of the first 100 websites in the world (laughs) just after graduating from MIT's computer science department. Uh, He opened Learner Consulting in 1995 and has been offering training services ever since 1996. Reuven, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jonathan. I'm super happy to be here. I'm, it's nice to catch up. It's been a while. Way, way, way too long. Yeah. So your story is one that I think, uh, is very inspirational to lots of software developers. So in the, uh, to me, I've, I sometimes jokingly refer to as, uh, jokingly re- refer to coding as the sort of coal mining of the new millennium. <laughs> it's this, this never ending <laughs> pursuit that is, you know, perhaps, perhaps more so than coal mining is kind of fun at first. In fact, very fun at first. It attracts a lot of people. It feels like a superpower, but combined with the de facto hourly billing approach that most people take and the kind of, uh, I don't know, it just it, it, at least for me, it started to feel like, uh, you know, spitting into the wind after a while, uh, you know, solving the same problems over and over re- reinventing the wheel, and that kind of thing. And, uh, As one matures in their career or in their business, sometimes their thoughts turn to productized services or training or uh, pure consulting or other approaches. And we we were in regular communication as panelists on a podcast while you were kind of going through the transition from, or maybe soon thereafter, going from developer slash consultant to full-time trainer, teaching people in person and online. So I I just really wanted to have you kind of share your experience there and give tips to folks who are perhaps thinking about going down a similar path.
1: Sure. So um, my background um, is, you know, I got a computer science degree and I started working for a computer company as a coder. And then I switched to a different company and was working as a coder. And I would hear about people who... As you said, as they matured, as they got older, they would either move into management, right, in these various companies that they were not be coding anymore, um, or they would go in some other sort of direction. I remember thinking to myself, that's nuts. Programming is the greatest thing ever. I'm having so much fun. Who would not want to do this all the time? Um, and right. perhaps coding at a startup or in a small group doing like new pioneering cool stuff. Yeah, that's kind of fun. But I see now from my corporate clients, a lot of them, I mean, you require smart people to work on these things, but you're a very small piece of a very large machine and you're spending lots of time making sure that the specs work and the tests work and you're going to meetings and on and on and on. So um, I have gone through this transition. It took me a long time to sort of realize it's okay to have a CS degree, to be technically knowledgeable, and not be writing code every day—like you don't have to hang your head in shame. You're not an <laughs> inferior being somehow. And in fact, in <laughs> somehow, in some ways, like you, you're drawing upon that experience and helping people do their work better, so they don't have to suffer quite as much as as, as maybe you you did or would have. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, st- I started off programming, and um, when I moved to Israel in 1995, um, I decided this was my big chance to try consulting. What did I know about consulting? Almost nothing. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I knew it meant not working for a company. I knew it meant opening my own business. Um, I mean, I always sort of toyed with, joked about, like, even from, like, elementary school, oh, I'm going to open my own company. But I didn't really know what that meant. Um, and luckily, uh, my, my last employer in the U.S. was Time Warner, and they said, well, if you're going to open your own consul- consulting company, we'll be happy to have you be, uh, you know, sort of do some freelance work for us. So we'll be your first client. Yeah, it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. So for four years, I even called them like my investors in my consulting company (laughs) because they were paying for 20 hours a week of work. And then I got sort of this other time to go look in other directions. And so what happened was I I was playing in all sorts of directions of different technologies. I was doing everything from Linux administration to web application development to helping individuals with their computers, you name it. And then uh, a company uh, came to me and said, hey – instead of having you do this Perl programming, could you teach our people how to do Perl programming? I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds like fun. And so that was my first taste of training. And it took many years of like trying a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So some consulting, some programming, some training. Um, and it was basically while I was finishing up my uh, dissertation for my PhD that I was approached by a training company. And they said, would you like to work with us? And I thought, sure, like, while I'm finishing up the dissertation, they can market my courses. And that's when I realized, wow, there's a lot of demand for training. And I really, like, enjoy it a lot. And I can stack it up long in advance. And the best part, no one is calling me late at night with bug reports. So, <laughs> there's no bug tracker. Oh my God. Right? Oh my God. And I just, I, and, and then I remember yeah. still meeting someone on the train and he asked me what I was doing. And I said, oh, well, I'm doing training. He said, oh, yeah, it's a shame it doesn't pay like programming. And my thought was, right, it pays better. Better. (laughs) (laughs) And programmers don't know this. Programmers are completely ignorant of this. So I now spend most days in, you know, each day I'm in a different city, often a different country, uh, different company, teaching. I have now about nine or 10 different Python uh, courses that range in length from a day to four days. And I'm now expanding online to teach as well. And I'm having just the greatest time ever. And people think I'm like a super software wizard because every day I am programming. I'm just not doing it for them and for their corporation.
0: That is exactly uh, what I was going to ask because I know I get this objection from people all the time. They say uh, even if they're just going into con- like pure advisory consulting about, l- let's say you were just going to do um, Python performance consulting, and that like that was the only thing you did, or using Python for data visualizations. That was the only thing you did. You weren't training anyone. You're just consulting on how to do it better or faster or whatever. The the objection that I get always is f- from technical people is like, oh, but then, but how, but then I'll get rusty. Like, how do I, how will I keep my skills sharp and, and, and give good advice or give good training classes or create good training classes if I'm not coding every day? What's your answer to that?
1: So I have two or three answers to that number one is if you're consulting In a specialized area, let's say it's performance, or you know, AWS, or or you know, debugging, or or whatever it is. If if you're helping companies in a consulting capacity to diagnose and even fix problems of a certain sort, you're then seeing a lot of those problems from a lot of different companies, and so your expertise—it's sort of like seeing a doctor who specializes in one kind of disease. They see all the different sort of variations on that disease, and so they're going to be really good at diagnosing and then treating it. Um, you might not be very good at doing other things, but you'll be really good at that because you're going to have such variety. So that's answer one. Answer mm-hmm. two is, in my particular case, I just only teach the things that I know. Um, and so I'm not teaching DevOps, because to teach DevOps would mean like setting up hundreds of servers and God knows what, and I'm just not prepared to do that. Um, but I can teach, like, you know, Python, I can teach intro data science. I can't do advanced data science, but I can do intro data science, and that works pretty well. But the third thing is, yeah, you need to spend some time then researching. So when I started doing my data science courses, I was spending incredible amounts of time researching and trying and playing and working so that I would understand it better. And I, I got a sense also of what I do know and where my limits are. Um, and, you know, that that takes some time to sort of figure out. So am I... Uh, the best person to come in and do a product in Python that needs to ship on X number of servers with a team of 20? No. But am I the person who has done a lot of thinking about how to explain Python so that other people can get the language and then use it to produce products with a team of 20?
0: Yes. Yeah, that's been my experience too. And I really like the twist you added at the end there, where I wasn't even thinking that, but you're 100% right. Which is that it's one thing to know Python, and obviously you have to know Python to teach Python, but it's another skill completely knowing how to teach it. So you can you can have the information in your head. You could have an encyclopedia encyclopedic knowledge of every bug on every version of Python on every version of OS. That's like you could have all that memorized, but you still need to be able to communicate it. And communicating it to people in an effective way is a skill unto itself. The other yeah, this, thing, I'm the, sorry. yeah, but the first thing that you were talking about, which is what I thought you were going to say, and it has also been my experience, which is that you something about when you're up in front of a, a room of 20 people or so on a regular basis, teaching a particular topic, you get hit with questions constantly that are from domain, you know, their domains, not your domain. So they're, they're in a financial services company or whatever. They're in some, you know, they, they run a knitting shop or they have all these weird backgrounds and edge cases and all of these things come filter funneled into you. And it creates, it just creates a, a, almost like a, I want to say bulletproof domain knowledge of the technology. Like oh, when I was teaching, sure. fi- yeah, years ago, I was teaching FileMaker training class, like 20, maybe 20 years ago at this point, I was teaching FileMaker training classes and like you couldn't stump me with a FileMaker question after six months. There was no question I didn't know the answer to. It was, it was like once a month I would learn something new about the product. And do you right. find like, do you, yeah, like, Absolutely. like, do you find in classes, do you get, um, I imagine when you, when you roll out a new course people hit you with questions and you get stumped on a regular basis, or it's like a really interesting question or a cool edge case. And that becomes an educational experience for you, I'm guessing, right?
1: So um I probably get, well, well first of all, I definitely see one of my competitive advantages as the combination of I teach very often and I teach in Israel. Israelis are known for being very aggressive uh, in terms of like, you know, questioning and Trying to stump people and saying, Oh, come on. Like, that can't be true. So, you know, from, from the time kids are in kindergarten here, you know, the kindergarten teacher says, Good morning. And 10 kids say, Really? Really? Are you sure about that? <laughs> so, <laughs> right. And just sort of goes downhill from there. Um, so, so like the fact that I teach often in Israel means that indeed I'm pelted by a lot of questions all the time. And if I teach a course five, six times here in Israel, by the time I go abroad, I can basically anticipate what the questions are going to be. I can teach sort of leading up to that. So they don't don't even realize they have the questions. Um, And I feel confident when they do ask questions that I've heard them before and I can answer them. That said... Mm. On a very regular basis, people ask me questions that I don't know the answers to just because you do think there's a very large, complex software system. You know, like it's, you know, it's a programming language and tons of modules and so on and so forth. And people are always coming up to me with new things. And I welcome that. I mean, easily, 60 70% of the things that I teach are based on questions and comments that I got from people. And so I'm always sort of tweaking and adjusting what I teach to better address the problems that people seem to be having, but I love that. Like, I love the fact that I see it as I'm getting paid to learn cool new things about Python and research them. Um, and I think it also helps me in my business where I say to them, I don't know everything. I'm going to learn things, ask me a question. And if I need, I'll do my homework and come back tomorrow.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think we've thoroughly dispelled the notion that you would start to get rusty at Python if you weren't coding every day, like for a, you know, on the clock or, you know, for building out a project or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I can totally get why people would think that. Um, and indeed, when when I was teaching, when I was training through this training company here in Israel for a few years, uh, before I left them and went back to doing it on my own, they actually said, we only hire trainers who are also practitioners in the field. So, even they doing training, either as a marketing tactic or because they really believed it,
0: um, expressed that need. Right. Yeah, you can. And I I can see that because the the reason why I'm even bringing it up in the first place is because I know that objection obzi- exists, even though I think it's a, a faulty objection, it exists. So I could see someone trying to address it with that approach. So let's rewind the clock a little bit. So you mentioned earlier that a training company approached you kind of out of the blue. And that was your entree into like serious training. Or, or correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. But how did that happen? How did they find you? What was that deal like? All right, so this is going to sound kind of crazy, but basically,
1: um, I was walking down the street in Herzliya, just north of Tel Aviv. Um, and I can't remember if I had a consulting gig or I was meeting someone, whatever it was, and someone nearly hits me with their car. And I'm about to, like, let him have a – don't you know how to drive? And I realized it's someone I knew, someone I'd actually worked with a few years ago, not such a – like, not a close friend. And so, you know, we laugh and, you know, he apologizes. And he says, wait a second, like, what are you doing nowadays? And I told me, he said, wait – would you be interested in doing training? Because he didn't really work for the training company, but he had it in with them. He said, let me introduce you to them. And you're doing, oh, you're doing Ruby? Great. So at that point, I was doing tons of Ruby and Ruby on Rails stuff. let me help you out with that. So he gets me into the training company, and they look at my resume, and they say, wow, this is great. Um, oh, actually, what happened was I talked to them on the phone, and they asked me to send them my resume – And they were very skeptical of the whole Ruby thing. But as soon as they saw the resume, they called me back. It was like within an hour or two and said, wait, you know Python? There was a ton of demand for Python. And I I mean, I'd used Python certainly for years. I knew it, but I'd never seen it as like more popular than Ruby. So they had their finger on the pulse of the market. And they were like, okay, you can try this Ruby thing, but it's just not going to go anywhere, at least not in the Israeli market. Python is where it's at. So... The way it worked with them was um, they would talk to companies. They had a whole marketing staff that would just be cold calling and not cold calling their customers all the time saying, what do you need? This is what we're offering. And they would send out catalogs. It was really a well-oiled marketing um, uh, machine. And they would call me up and say, company XYZ needs a Python course next month on the following days. Are you available? And I would say, yes. <laughs> and so it started off being one course a month. And that became two courses a month. And like within a year or so, I was scheduled out two or three months in advance and we were sort of stacking them up just because my courses were so popular and Python was so popular and we, we had to start doing this. And that's when I started realizing, wow, this can be a business in and of itself, right? There's the marketing part and there's the training part, but I'd been in business for myself for a while. I realized it was maybe different marketing, but like it was, it was a viable thing to do. It wasn't just something to do between consulting gigs.
0: Yes. Great point. And did you get a sense of, uh, to the extent that you can share this, did you get a a sense of how the numbers were working for them and for you and the (laughs) comparison between the two?
1: So, (laughs) yes. And it happened on a few sort of occasions. So, first of all, um, I showed up at uh, Cisco one day. I did a lot of training there. I still do a lot of training there. And it turns out that someone I knew was also doing training at Cisco. And so, like, we had adjoining classrooms. And I said to him, Oh, what are you teaching? He said, Oh, I'm teaching Python. Now he's not really a, such a Python expert, but he was like trying to market himself as such. And I told him that I was working through this training company. And he was like, Oh, really? And we compared numbers. And it turns out <laughs> he was earning twice as much as I was. Because like they right. were taking a 50% cut. I was like, wow, wow, I'm such an idiot. Boy, one of these days I've like, you know, got to ask for more. And I think I managed to edge them up a little more what I was getting, but it's typically gonna be that a training company gets 60%, 50-60%. And then a few months after that, I gave what's called an open enrollment course at their offices in Tel Aviv. So my my typical bread and butter is I show up at a company and they invite me to teach their group of people. Um But open enrollment is you get a classroom and then every company pays per seat for up to, I don't know, 20 seats. And so the training company was selling tickets to, you know, my open enrollment training. And someone said to me during the lunch break, boy, do you know how much we are paying for this? I hope they're paying you really well. I said, tell me, how much are you paying? (laughs) And that's when I discovered I was getting 10% of the income. And that's when I really blew a gasket and realized, okay, I got to go back to doing this on my own. Like, this is nuts. And I I Mm. went to the head of training at this training company, and I said, listen, I I, got to get a larger percentage here. And she said, you know, we have a very expensive building here in the center of Tel Aviv. We can't afford to pay you more. Um, and that was the beginning of the end. That's when I, I came yeah. home and said to my wife, like, I, I can't go through these people anymore or not for much longer because, like, at this point, they're calling up a company saying, when do you want training? Like, they're doing literally five minutes of work, and I'm getting 50% or less of the profits.
0: Yeah. I mean, in their defense, you did mention that they had a well-oiled marketing machine that probably took them years to set up and so on and so forth. But at a, at a certain point, you were like, you know, I could probably do better on my own. I mean, that's, that's how I would characterize it in a sort of, um, neutral way. Look, the, you're I, like, I,
1: to, right. To their credit, I mean, look, I am still not so good at cold calling and getting into companies where they don't know me. So when a company reaches out to me, fantastic. And that happens enough. They don't have to worry about it, but me reaching out to them now is it time consuming, but it's hard. So if Mm -hmm. I had started from zero, um, it would be difficult. And I do appreciate the work and effort that they put into getting their tentacles into all these companies all around,
0: (laughs) certainly Israel Tentacles, (laughs) That's Nice visual. Um, all right. Well, that's an interesting lead into, uh, leads how do you get leads now so People since call me. you don't consider yourself a, a excellent marketer but what how do they how do you generate awareness how do they how do you build trust with strangers how do they get attracted to you what causes them to call you or send an email
1: so probably once every month or two I get a call from a company I've never heard of or I have heard of them and I've never worked with them before um, and I always ask, "How did you hear about me?" And the mm. most typical story is, "You gave a class several years ago at Company X. The person from Company X now works for us, and when they heard that we were going to be using Python, they
0: recommended we call you." Wow! So tight positioning. Woof. So very basi-
1: nice. so, basically. Oh, by, by the way, like like, <laughs> I was sitting at the train, like waiting for the train in Haifa, probably about two years ago, three years ago. Sitting on the bench there, waiting for the train. This guy sits down next to me, looks at me and says, you do Python training. You're Reuven. I was in your class several years ago. So, so, it, I mean, originally I was doing training in lots of things and I found that the more I, you know, niche down, the more I branded myself as a Python trainer and not as a programming trainer, the better business got. So originally I was doing right. Python, Ruby, Postgres and Git. And I drop the Ruby and Postgres, not because I don't like those technologies, but because by saying I do Python training and will pretend that Git is part of Python, um, <laughs> like people instantly, like when people want Python training, at least in Israel, they know to call me, right? Like I'm, I'm the first or one of the first numbers they call because I'm closely identified with it. And I can take advantage of the fact that people move from workplace to workplace every year or two and to get the word out for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, plus, the dandelion principle.
1: Yeah, and plus, like, the, uh, I work with enough big companies that they'll call me and ask for anywhere from, I've got one client where it's, like, one class a month to other clients where it's once every two, three months to others where it's once a year. And I can, you know, expect them to call me once a year, you know, twice a year to to come in and do stuff. And that combination, and these big companies have more or less infinite, you know, (laughs) infinite numbers of employees who need to take my course.
0: Yeah, right. So here's something i want to call out explicitly for the listener which is that you know as Ruben has pointed out he can teach lots of different things but when he's promoting himself or when he's doing marketing he's decided because it's effective and he's found that it's effective that he's focused on python it's just the one thing and that seems like uh to a lot of people that feels like death it feels like boredom it feels like a lie but i'm so much better i can do so many other things why would i focus down just on python and the the visual that i try to stick in people's minds is it's the same as putting a sandwich board out on the sidewalk in front of an irish pub that says voted best guinness in town it doesn't mean they only sell guinness it means that that is the thing that's probably the most important to the people walking by who will probably be the best customers so it makes it memorable you think oh mcbrides has the best guinness in town let's go there Or you're walking by and you see it and you're like, oh, that's a good idea. I'm in the mood for that. Or, oh, this seems like a nice place. Whatever. You don't expect that they only sell Guinness inside, that it's the only thing on the menu. So the point being in this case is, and this is leading up to a question, I promise. Um, (laughs) It's fine. Your your Guinness for you is like you're like the go-to guy for Python training. I probably, I, I will be, you know, I'm biased because I know you, but... I mean, certainly you're the only person in the literal world I would think of if somebody said, hey, do you know a Python trainer? And I'm sure I know probably scores of Python developers or people. I'll probably know a thousand people who know Python. I bet you I do. But I would not think of any of them if somebody asked me for a Python trainer. I would only think of you. So what that does is when in a situation where Reuven is trying to attract a brand new customer who doesn't know him from anybody this is it's automatically going to work for people who are looking for a Python trainer. So boom, now you're in the door. Now you're inside the establishment. Now you're sitting at the bar, you're sitting at a table and you're having a conversation like, Oh, well I'm maybe not in the mood for Guinness right now. I'm not in the mood for Python right now. Um, or you give a, you know, you give a bunch of Python courses and they're like, yeah, oh, man, do you know anybody that teaches Git? Or do you know anybody that teaches Ruby? And you can say, Oh, I, I teach that too. So
1: it's funny you mention that. So I'll, I'll I'll both agree and disagree with you there. So I decided okay. to give up on the Ruby and the Postgres training altogether, um, simply because I didn't have time to keep up with those technologies as well, and I wasn't getting as much um, as much business in them. So it sort of went together, mm-hmm. um, and and also it was a very conscious effort on my part. And I tell people to do this all the time: if you want to be a trainer, don't say I do consulting and training. Say, I train in Python, right? And it gives a totally different image. And when companies call me and they say, well, what do you teach? Like, what courses do you offer? The fact that I can say, go to my website, slash courses, and you'll see all the courses I teach and all the syllabi, that shows, like, I care about training, and that's what I put front and center, and that's what they want. They don't Mm -hmm. want, oh, this is, like, number 10 on the guy's, you know, list.
0: Yeah, they don't want to feel like you're winging it.
1: Right, right, right. And and the, and the fact that I have a syllabus that we can then negotiate over as opposed to, well, what do you want? I want that, that much better with mm-hmm. the Git stuff. It turned out I was at one of my like, you know, standard clients where I'm really there quite a lot. Um, and I mentioned something about Git training that I also do Git training. And the head of training said to me, oh, my God, are you serious? You do Git training also? I said, why? She said, we just signed with, of course, the training company I'd worked with to uh, to do Git training. And I said, oh, okay. Well, like next time, if you keep me in mind. Six months later, she turned to me and said, listen, they were disastrous. We know we can <laughs> trust you. Can we do Git with you? And so now I'm teaching intro Python and I upsold them on advanced Python and Git. So virtually every one of their hundreds of engineers takes three courses with me. Um, And that's like 10 days a year from this company per person. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's like, it's it's phenomenal.
0: Yeah. So, let me unpack a little bit of that. So, um, I actually love that you pointed out that you just wouldn't even do uh, Ruby and what was the other one? Com- uh, and uh, PostgreSQL uh, database. PostgreSQL, right. Right, right, right. And because you don't need to, right? Like, you don't need to have a thousand beers on tap to use the Irish pub metaphor. Right. Because you, you've got like, you're... you're uh, you're maxed out, let's say, or you're you're getting plenty of business with a even smaller set of offerings than, um, than what you could it's, theoretically teach. And it's worth it for me to develop a new Python
1: course, which mm-hmm. fits in with the other Python stuff, than it is for me to
0: learn these other technologies and remember them where there's a disconnect. Right. right. And so the point is to the listener, the point that I want to make to the listener is that you've got a situation where, um you have upsells. In other words, like you've once, so your marketing to strangers is executed in a different way. Just not Ruben only just in general, your marketing to strangers is executed in a different way. It's simplified. It's dumbed down. You need to penetrate through the noise. So it's, it's simplified. It's boiled down. It's the most, um, it's the most specific, the most valuable. It's your best offering. It's your best thing. So, all right, great. That's my best thing. But once you're in a conversation with people, it's a different thing. You're you're in a trusted relationship, there's not as much fear or risk and you can offer like oh, you know, I teach Git or oh, I teach an advanced Python class. Or you know, if you wanted to do something, I don't know, something uh, like what are some you said you have like 9 or 10 courses. Um are they all Python related or mostly all Python related?
1: They're all Python related in some way or another. So like I found there was all this stuff about files and networks that just didn't fit into any of my other python courses so i call it python for system administrators voila two-day course um (laughs) right um i found that uh i had originally tried to teach regular expressions in my original python course and i found that the hour that i devoted to it was boring for the people who knew it already and useless for the people who didn't know it so Mm. i carved out a two-day course in regular expressions bam now i can teach that too Right. So, so a lot of it was also discovering that it was better to have my courses be specialized, not just me be specialized, that each course, the tighter I could define, more tightly I could define it, then the more people would sort of be interested in taking it. And then I could break off the other pieces that were not part of that core course and turn into Mm -hmm.
0: separate courses and give each of them their depth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's great. And so, so people might be noticing as they're listening to this that these are really specific. And in my in my my uh, personal history, like creating courses or books or some sort of um, curriculum or info product or something like that, I have a tendency, or I had a tendency, I don't anymore, to want to write the Bible about everything. So like, oh, I'm going to do the Bible, like the soup tonight's every detail about FileMaker or every detail about you know the the php api for filemaker or every detail about responsive web design or every detail about PhoneGap, gap like just do like this comprehensive deep dive and it's like that's not usually i mean sometimes you want that but what you're describing is more in line with my experience which is that people know they have a particular need at a particular time and they don't care i mean they might care about the money but they're more interested in in optimizing the time commitment to learn all that stuff like somebody doesn't want to take a 12-week course learning everything that ever happened with git but they might want to know git or python but they might want to know you know well i've got some system administrators administrators who need to use python to move files around like maybe we should just drop them into a a one-day course right and and having
1: um, having all these upsells makes it easier to talk to these companies also oh you have these needs also when a when a new company calls I can say, oh, okay, you, you need this specialization. Well, I can just grab this piece from this course and that piece from that course. And they feel over the moon because they feel like, Oh, mm. we're getting a special thing. When custom for me, course, it's right? like, you know, <laughs> right. It's, they think it's custom. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you want to do this instead of that? Sure. I'll just swap out the modules and I'll teach something else. That's fine with
0: mm-hmm. me. Yeah. So what, what can you tell people about, um, the comment you made earlier about you know oh it's too bad training doesn't pay as well as development like my my experience is that geez i did i for for a little while i did a couple of courses with Maracana, which was a a training company that i think got acquired by twitter or somebody and they were all remote and i think i was getting paid three thousand dollars a day to do remote remote training like from my basement my jammies which was okay you know i felt like they were I was pretty well known at the time. So I wasn't sure really who was attracting more customers. If it was me or them, it was probably them, but Mm -hmm. it it didn't feel like that at the time. Um, But, and I had a similar experience to you where I was like, why don't, I mean, I, I'm like literally, you know, teaching this class from my computer in my house. Why not? Why what's Maricana adding here other than attracting the clients? Which is non-trivial, but I knew how to do it. It's a big thing, but I knew how to do it. So, so it was kind of the same sort of thing, but you know, 3000 bucks a day to stand there at my desk and, you know, for six hours or whatever it was, it wasn't great, but it wasn't too bad. But, you know, if they were probably getting paid, you know, five or six or seven or $8,000 for it, maybe more. So what, you know, so if you imagine, dear listener, that you're getting paid, uh, I don't know. Well, you tell me, Ruben, like what's a reasonable expectation for someone who's doing well to like to build to? So if you wanted to go into training and even not even the travel part, but well, you I don't know. You you could break it down maybe because I know you do some online stuff, too. So like what what's I guess what I'm getting at is what are the expectations?
1: So um, first of all, the pay in Israel and in China is lower than in Europe and the U.S., so this is why I've like been trying to get more into the U.S. market and the European market, because quite frankly, it pays more. And mm-hmm. by more, what do I mean? Well, the typical, like the number that I've been told for several years now as a good reasonable amount to charge for training in the U.S. is $6,000 a day for about 20 people, right? We're talking like $300 per person per day. Mm-hmm. Um, which means now, now, which means that first of all, that means like a, my four day course, $24,000. I have been told recently that that's probably low. Right? I think it's low. Yeah. So so it could very well be that I could be charging, you know, 8,000 a day, 9,000 a day already. Um,
0: if you're know, really I'm getting st- 20 people, I mean, if they're only putting two people in it, yeah, they're going to start to complain, but
1: no, but these companies are big, right? They have, they have people. And so it is totally not unreasonable to charge that amount. I mean, when I told a company that I want to charge 5,000 a day, because I really just wanted to get in the door. First of all, as I'm sure you know, Jonathan, they could not have cared less about that $1,000 a day. It was like <laughs> not even, what did they care? They're a Fortune 100 company. Yeah, um, yeah. And the end, it fell through. And when it fell through, I spoke to the manager and he said, listen, I feel really bad. It was like this whole bad combination of circumstances that was no one's fault in particular. And he said, look, I feel really bad. But by the way, let me give you some advice. You're charging way too little. Right. Now, when a client tells you you're charging them too little, listen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the next client, like when I was approached by a company in Silicon Valley, I quoted six thousand a day, and the only thing they complained about was the travel budget. So I said six thousand a day, so it's like four days. So that'll be you know six hours, twenty four, so twenty four thousand dollars. And I said, and my travel, and I said, well, you know, I really only travel business class. P.S. Not oh, true. See, P.S. Not true. But I wanted to say that because I wanted to see what I could get away with. Uh. Um, so so they said, yeah. well really like we're gonna limit your travel to three thousand dollars. Will that do it? And I looked up travel. I was like, listen, my flight is gonna be like all told, can we make it four thousand? And they said But do Dum. you see yeah, go ahead. So so the the they were willing they were willing and even insistent on negotiating on the travel expenses, but the course expenses they could not have cared in the slightest so far as I can tell.
0: Okay, so I have I have two reactions to that. One is that it's a hilarious, potentially a hilarious way to negotiate something, but not the important thing, which is right. usually is. what you want to do. So, it could be a hilarious thing to say. um, What did you say? It was six thousand dollars, yeah, twenty four thousand dollars for the, and then you had so, so you you could say something hilarious like uh, it's thirty five thousand dollars for the four day course for up to twenty, uh blah, 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 and it's ten thousand dollars for travel, and they'd be like ten thousand dollars for travel. <laughs> Right. And then you That's could exactly. right. Because it sounds crazy. <laughs> uh, the other, the other thing that occurs to me is, the, and then you could ne- negotiate it down to five and then you've made a concession and you're still flying business class. The other thing is that you could, I don't know if this is, I don't know how often this is done in the training space, but surely in the consulting space. And certainly when I was doing consulting, I would include all of my travel expenses for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of which was to avoid conversations like that, to avoid deal, derailing a gig over the fact that I wanted to stay at the Four Seasons and not, you know, uh, Motel Six. And the, the, and especially when the approval was going to go through some procurement department where, you know, a lower level employee would be like, I cannot believe this person is, you know, blah, 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 getting paid to stay at the Four Seasons. What a prima donna. I, I don't even want that to enter anybody's mind. I don't want that to delay payment. So I would just roll in a generous uh, allowance for flight and et cetera, et cetera, for whatever gig it was. And I just give them one big price and I'd say, it's all inclusive. You don't, I don't have to send you an expense report later. I'm going to pay for everything. You don't have to worry about any of that. It's just totally inclusive. And then it makes it a simpler decision for the buyer. And then when they forward it to like an accounting department, there's nothing for them to judge.
1: So I'll tell you, um, they actually, this company actually sort of wanted me to break it out um, and mm-hmm. separate it. Um, and it actually worked to my advantage because then, so I went, I did one course for them in San Jose and I did another course for them in India. And it turns out and, – and by the way, like, going to San Jose – so I wasn't in business class, but I was in, like, premium – like, better than premium economy. It was more than adequate for my needs. Like, really? <laughs> come on. Like, how pretentious do I have to be? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's nice. But, you know, and, and going to India, um, we basically just agreed on the same amount because we had agreed on this is the amount that my travel expenses are. So there I could be business class. Um, and the funny thing is I paid exactly the same amount for my hotels in San Jose and in India. Um, and (laughs) you know, in San Jose, what that money got you was a basic budget hotel, which was fine for me. And in India, I was, I've never been in a more luxurious place in my life. And I was expecting them to say, can we see the like receipts, something and nothing, nothing at all. Like once it was approved, that's it. Now I'll give you a counter example, by the way. So when I work with another company and I've gone abroad for them a number of times, they actually have an amount of money that they will pay for travel and expenses. So they say, right. okay, your course costs this, and oh, it's a four-day course, so this is the allowance. And they've said they want to see receipts now. Because it sounds like, like what I used to describe was, like if I would go to Belgium for them sometimes, I would tell my wife, okay, if I swim to Belgium, and I pitch <laughs> a tent on like, you know, on the, in the park, <laughs> then we just pocket all the money. And it seems <laughs> that the procurement department sort of got wise to people like me being super cheap, and like getting a budget hotel and getting a cheap flight, Cause I really don't care that much um, yeah. as long as there's leg room and then pocketing the difference. So now, now they got they, they wise to that. Okay. You forced me. I'll have to take a better flight. Fine.
0: But look how far down, the, like how far down we've gone into the details of like right. just it's, silly, like it's it's, silly stuff, right? The, the up the food chain. And so this is, there's probably, there's, I, I haven't done nowhere near training on the scale that you have, but I have done it. And I would always try and keep the, the conversation at the buyer level Mm -hmm. and in a consulting arrangement, I was always talking to people who were fairly far up the food chain, if not the top dog. And the, the, these are not the kind of people who worried about a few hundred bucks here or there or receipts or anything like, they just don't care. It's like, that's all noise to them. Somebody else will take care of that. So you know, if, if anyone ever takes care of it. So that's why I would roll everything into just one lump price. You know, I'll, I'll get there. Don't worry about it. You don't have to make arrangements. You don't have to file receipts later. We don't even have to talk to your expense department. So the, the tricky thing is, you know, I did, like I said earlier, you could use it as a point of negotiation, but when you start talking about things that are so far from the value of what you're offering that you uh, run afoul of some corporate policy, which is probably different from client to client to client. And, right. you know, you could just some people are just not going to swallow it. And, you you know, maybe you say, I, I don't even want to make any advice here. So it's just like, it's just something to think about. Um, you can decide how important are it is doing, to you, right? Like to right. me,
1: it's important to have leg room on a flight, but like really and truly in a hotel,
0: if I have like bed, bathroom, shower and Wi-Fi, I'm happy. So that's not even what I mean exactly. What I mean is, is what do you want to discuss with the client? Right. Not so, what, so, so, what's good enough for you? But like, oh, what do you no, want to discuss? I was just saying, like, if I, I'm willing to negotiate on the
1: travel expenses, like, I, I, I'm willing to go down on that because, especially if they're paying me well for the course itself. Um, and by right. the way, like, like coming in as an outside person, like, I'm the outside expert trainer. So while I was in San Jose, the secretary who'd done all the communication came to me and she said, So Peter, the guy you know who who invited you to come do this uh, this course, he'd like to have lunch with you tomorrow. I was like, oh that's great. So I mentioned to someone in my class, hey, you like you know Peter, right? And they give me these glassy eyes and they're like, that's my boss's 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 boss. You're having <laughs> lunch with him? <laughs> like, <laughs> because he wanted to come meet the guy from abroad who was training his staff. So they see you as a valuable asset to their company right? and they don't mind paying
0: the sort of top dollar because you're giving them so much value. Right. Ideally, that's the way it's going to work. There, I do recognize that with consulting, it's like the Wild West. It still is the Wild West. There's like no way to compare apples to apples. With training, it's less so where they have probably got some experience with other trainers or other training classes that they've had and they have certain expectations around the price that are not necessarily connected to the value because, you know, like you go out to buy a book and you expect it to cost, you know, less than a hundred dollars. Why? Because it's going to have less than a hundred dollars worth of value. No, because that's how much books cost. Right. So if you're working with someone who has an expectation, who buys thousands of training classes a year, they're going to have really strong pricing expectations. And if you want to exceed those, those uh, prices or their expectations of your price, you're going to have to make a pretty it's an uphill battle you can do it but it's an uphill battle Uh, but the uh, the the good news is that if the if their expectations are kind of high then it's not that you know potentially not that hard of a sale because they're expecting to spend a ton of money anyway
1: right and I'll, i'll add um two things there one is the price like part of the reason why training is such a lucrative thing for individuals is that the pricing that these companies expect to, to have, prices that these companies expect to pay, takes into account the marketing, and the office, and the staff, and on and on. And so basically, there's a reason why training companies take 50%, because they have to pay all these other people. And me doing this on my own, I get to basically pocket what all those other people would get. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so thing as is, long as you're you know, getting leads, it's fine. Right, right, right. The, the, the other thing is that there are other ways to charge for courses. One of them is per person. And I strongly prefer per day because then I say it's per day with a maximum number of participants of X. Mm-hmm. And then the onus is on them to get as many people as they can into the classroom up to that maximum. As yeah. opposed to if it were per person. And then they'd say, okay, we only got five people.
0: And then it just becomes not worth it. Right, especially when you're flying around. Right. So that, so that's a good segue into, uh, either on, you know, live or what, how would you, how do you describe an online course that you present live?
1: So, or so, well, they're, are different ones. Like there are the live online courses where it's like a webinar mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. do that for companies. I've tried to do it on my own and it was a failure just because mm-hmm. reaching out to my mailing list and saying who would like it at such and such a time, the number of people overlap with the right time zone and can take off time for it is very small. So I'll do corporate training in that way, but I haven't done individual training, at least not successfully in that way. But then I have my recorded video courses, which Mm -hmm. are sort of, you know, recorded versions of what I do in person. Yep. And it's wildly different. It's like a totally different product, even though the content is the same, but Mm. the audience is different. The packaging is different. The pricing is different. Um, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's, it's kind of been wild to learn those lessons as I get into that world.
0: So what, can you, can you kind of characterize the amount of effort it took to put together like whatever? Let's let's say you've got a flagship course or your favorite course or the one that's the bestseller. How long does it take to put together something like that? I can kind of like talk about that a little bit.
1: All right. So my, my sort of bread and butter course is intro Python. It's four days long. So that means let's assume I'm teaching for, I don't know, five hours, five and a half hours of each of those days because then you have lunch and breaks and lots of exercises. Um, so five times four is going to be 20 hours of video. I have not yet put all 20 hours of video of my intro Python course up online because no one wants to buy a 20 hour course. Um, <laughs> I mean, I actually have like, like I have a course now pandas. That's like, I've already got 10 hours of video and I'm going to be adding another two hours. And I, I just, I'm just going to cut it at that. Cause like there is a limit as to how much you can do in one course if people want to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I only do video courses of stuff I've taught many times previously. Mm-hmm. So for me, getting up and making these explanations and saying these things and giving these demos is something I've done dozens of times before. Um, and my video uh, method is very simple. I get up and I just present. And I do it in five, 10 minute segments. No part of my video is longer than 10 minutes long. And that I learned is important both for my production and for people not to sort of drift off, get bored, not know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I do break my course. So if I have an hour presentation in class, I'll turn that into five, six, seven, eight segments. And I'll write it in advance like, okay, I'm going to talk about this, then talk about this, then talk about this. And sometimes it gets messed up along the way, but but it'll mostly work. And then I get up and I just talk. And if it goes well, I keep it. And if it does not go well, I re-record it. Yep. Um, and so it's all live and ad-libbed uh, from memory. Maybe I have a few notes on the side, um, and it seems to work. By the way, one of these days, I'll get professional enough, smart enough, whatever, to have people do some like fancy video editing of my videos, <laughs> but like, not right now. So how much time does it take? Let's assume that for every hour of video I put up, it's like two or three hours of actual work, and that's because I'm doing the minimum that I just described. Mm-hmm. because there's the waiting for it to be encoded and the uploading and the mistakes yeah. and what do I want to do next? So every time I'm like, oh, I have a three-hour window, I can record three hours of video, what a joke. I can maybe record half
0: an hour to an hour on a really good day. Right. Okay. So uh, what do you, do you think that teaching... What am I trying to ask? I'm trying to ask how to get started. So if, so let's say I am a React native Expert. I feel like I know all about it. I've been doing it as my day job for a long time. I've got a fairly popular open source repo that's related to React. Uh, I, I feel like I know what's up. I've got, you know, thousands of followers on Twitter or I've got, you know, my repo's got like 4000 stars. It's been forked a couple hundred times. People are sending me, you know, like you're like, you're not just nowhere. You've got the attention of some people you've been creating things in as a developer would create things like putting stuff on, on GitHub and, and, and maybe blogging or doing YouTube videos, just, you know, kind of like to help the community, make the community bigger. What do you think to the extent that you can answer a question like this, should they start, where should they start to get into training if that's what they feel like they want to do? Is it so videos? First of all, I think it's, is it, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, look, okay. in-person training is, I think, more effective, and it teaches you more because it's interactive. Like, I always think the magic and the learning is in the interactions. And totally so agree. I even wrote this mm-hmm. blog post years ago where I said, I am never going to do online recorded training because, mm-hmm. like, and I gave all these analogies to television and movies and the theater, and I prefer to be there and feel the audience. And it's not just a money thing. It's also, like, I really want to get the word out to as many people as possible, and I'm now stuck, like I don't have enough time. Also, mm-hmm. I should add, like the videos give me flexibility with clients, where I say, well, I don't have four days, but I have three days. You want to buy my videos for the first day? And they go for mm-hmm. that sometimes.
0: Oh, so, interesting.
1: So if they want to do it, I would say there are two different directions to start in. One is to do – keep it short. No matter what, keep it short. An hour, two hours of video. Sell it for a small amount of money um, or even start giving it away or even do webinars first. In fact, let me back up. Do webinars. Do webinars okay. because um, that will help you to get the rust off of your explanations. And you'll sort of get a feel for what is and is not necessary. Do them for free. Give them away. Mm-hmm. Then once you've figured out the timing, you've figured out the subject, then do a short, maybe an hour or two um, video course. Put it up. Advertise it to everyone you know. And don't charge that much for it. Charge something, but don't charge that much for it. Mm-hmm. You're going to learn so much just in that process that it will be fantastic. And so the dilemma or those sort of the two options I mentioned earlier were, do you do it for beginners where there's a larger market and you can really help people to understand things? Or do you do it for the experts, helping them address some problem that you see people struggle with all the time, like a security issue or an internationalization issue or a specific browser issue or something like something really that's like a big problem for a small number of people. My preference is generally to do it for beginners, for a wider audience, partly because I enjoy teaching them more, partly because it's easier to cater that audience. Um, but that's up to you. But start small. And then you'll say – then you gonna get feedback from people. And I ask them for feedback. What do you think? What was good? What was bad? I have I use Drip. And when someone buys a course from me – so like I use Podia to sell my courses. And when someone buys a course of Podia, it sends a message to Drip. They get put on my mailing list. And 30 days later, they get email from me saying, so what do you think? Um, and mm. I get feedback from people saying this was good, this was bad. Mostly this was good, but here and there. And also get apologies from people. Oh, I've been sick. I haven't watched it. Okay, right. I hope you feel better. <laughs> right. Um, and but sometimes I'll get good constructive criticism from people, and I'll go back and I'll fix things.
0: Very nice. So, do you think that the the in person stuff that you're doing? Do you think that over time you would phase that out, or and and go more online or or self-paced video courses or do you think that those two things there's a really good synergy with having both or or do you feel like you're in a progression where you know you're gonna move away from something and move towards something else
1: i'm in a progression because look i'm now uh 49 and i love what i do i really really do i know i know (laughs) like my my my, my 16 year old like she's in this entrepreneurship program and they had to do a survey over the summer and then part of the survey was how old are you and there was like you know uh, less than 10 and, you know, 10 to 16. And then they had 40 plus. <laughs> 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 I was like, okay, like, I know I'm as good as dead here, but fine. We keep laughing about this at home. Um But, like, the fact is, like, right now I get a real rush from teaching four or five days every week, four weeks out of the month. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know how long I'm going to really want to do that. And so I'm trying to move into products more and more, partly so that I can then have the luxury of saying, you know what, I'm only going to teach one week out of the month, mm-hmm. or I can choose. Also, once I have that time, then I can research, like it's sort of, uh, uh, um, what would we call it? not Not a, a vicious cycle, a virtual cycle, where mm-hmm. the more courses I sell online, the more that gives me time to do more courses online. And if I could have a library of, you know, 20, 30, 40 courses, that would be great.
0: Sure. Excellent. Wow. I could talk all day. Uh, this is, this has been fabulous. I think that people listening who have a skill, they've got an expertise, they're probably a developer, but they don't, and not necessarily a developer there. I know there are copywriters and photographers and other folks like that listening who have this expertise and there's this, it's almost a fork in the road, I think, where you could say, well, who am I going to share this expertise with? Am I going to apply the expertise or advise clients who need this expertise about how to 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 do the thing or am i going to teach essentially my peers and we're going to am i going to directly transfer the expertise to someone else versus applying the expertise or helping people apply the expertise it feels like a pretty big fork in the road so for for folks who are thinking about transferring their expertise to peers essentially i think that uh, Ruben really. I mean, you're a shining example. Honestly, I can't think of any. I honestly cannot think of anybody else who does so much to kind of advocate for that approach. I literally can't think of anyone else. You're the double positioned, the go-to Python trainer and the trainer trainer. Very nice. Look,
1: I I feel very fortunate because you know so many people talk about teaching as a wonderful thing to do, but doesn't pay. And I feel like I've got the best of all worlds. I mean, I go to companies and people thank me for helping them improve their careers, improve their work, improve their products, and they're paying me for it. So if I can help other people to you know, achieve that sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, pleasant position, like good feeling that you're doing good and also, you know, doing well in the, uh, you know, in your business, all the better.
0: Yep. Yeah. You're making impact and getting paid well for it. That's great. Cool. Where should people go to find out more about you online and maybe connect?
1: So my website is at learner. That's l-e-r-n-e-r. Co. I-l. And uh, from there, you can find my uh, uh, mailing list. Um, well, you can find my, my main mailing list for developers. But developers, you can find my trainer weekly list. You can find my free email courses, and of course, my paid online courses, and a list of like what I do in terms of uh, corporate training. Um, you can catch me on Twitter. I don't tweet that much except about like my new blog post and so forth at uh, <laughs> Reuven M. Lerner. That's R-E-U-V-E-N-M-L-E-R-N-E-R. I guess we'll have the show notes so you don't need to yes, follow yes, yes. my quick spelling. <laughs> um, and I'm always happy to hear from people. I really, really love talking to people who are interested in training from all around the world. And if I can help push people forward and get them even to like try it out, it might be it's not for you. But at least give it a whirl and see how it goes.
0: Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us, Ruben.
1: My pleasure. Look forward to uh, talking to you again and hearing from your listeners as well.
0: Fabulous. All right. That's it for this time around on Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I hope you join us again next time. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. The next time someone asks for your hourly rate, I want you to stop what you're doing and go to valuepricingbootcamp.com to sign up for my free value pricing email course. That URL again is valuepricingbootcamp.com.